0: I'm Rudy Rucker, and here we are at the last day of WesterCon, Sunday, July 4th, 2010. And um, I'm holding a microphone because I'm going to tape this. I often put my talks up as podcasts on my website, and then I can expand from a few dozen listeners to scores, or maybe even hundreds. Um, The topic I'm going to talk about today is new futures in SF, and... uh, this is a topic that's interesting to me right now, particularly because I finished a novel in March, and now I'm sort of casting around, wondering what to write about next. And uh, let me start by saying some general ideas, um, general thoughts about ideas and science fiction novels. Um, one thing to keep in mind: you, you don't just need an idea; you you need the idea has to have some kind of meaning for you, some emotional resonance or some relationship to society at large. Every now and then, actually just a few months ago I had, had somebody email me, said, well I'm not a writer but I have a great idea for an SF novel, let's t- get together and have coffee and I'll tell you the idea and you'll write the book and you'll sell it and we'll split the money. <laughs> so, and I think most writers get things like that. and. Uh, the thing is it isn't just the idea you can give the same idea to to ten different people, and you'll get ten completely different novels or stories. We often see that there'll be anthologies on some theme like nanotechnology or something of that like that, and the stories are all different and again, it's because it's not just the idea, it's not just the gimmick, it's the, uh, the sort of meaning that attaches to it, and then there's more than that, of course there's building up a plot, building up a world, having characters, having a story. So it's all, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes in. But with this said, there is still something that uh, people sometimes say, well, it's all about story. Well, sure, you're going to write a story. But even so, you, you want to have some sort of spot that you want to visit, some sort of interesting science fictional notion that you want to hit. and. Uh, Okay, now, one thing that happens as time goes by, if you're a writer, after a while you've written about m- a lot of the things that you really wanted to write about. Uh, like, over the years I made a list of some of the things I've ri- ideas I've written about. I've written about an infinitely large world, a four-dimensional world, about flying jellyfish, about a giant ass from the fourth dimension. That was combining a couple of different interests. About robots who evolve, about robots made of soft plastic, about aliens who travel as cosmic ray particles, about UFOs that can travel into the future, about shrinking down to sizes below the tiniest elementary particles, about growing to sizes larger than the galaxy, about a biotech world with no machines at all, about going to meet the intelligent vortex beings who live inside the sun, about the afterworld, about parasitic mind-controlling slugs who ride on people's backs. I got that from the puppet masters, of course, about flying like Superman, about exploring the hollow earth, about a global swarm of virtual ants who destroy all TV, about a direct matter control device that turns air into whatever object you want, about parallel universes, and about a future in which every object in the world Comes to life. So these are the, some of the ideas that have appealed to me over the years. Now, I don't absolutely need to come up with a brand new idea for my next novel. I mean, there's always ways to come back to the ideas that I like. Uh, one thing that I do keep in mind, uh, I don't really feel that I necessarily have to go back to golden age ideas, the generation starship idea. And the thing is, sometimes when you're a beginning writer, you imagine there are rules to science fiction. You'll say, people wrote about these things. This is the way the future is. These are the rules of science fiction. But remember, these are writers, just like, just like you might be. They, a lot of these ideas, they sort of made up, and uh, it sort of gets this solidity. We read about them, we begin to think that they're really true, and the future has to be that way. But there's no... Uh, the future tends to be more surprising than, than we expected. I mean, I was talking, uh, I mean, when I was a boy, TV was new, you know, and, and people weren't really thinking about cell phones and handheld computer screens, and uh, a lot of the things that we have now, the Internet. Uh, so it's, uh, my point is, it's, there's no reason to hold back when you're trying to think about something that might happen in the future. There's a lot of, a lot of room for stuff to play with. Now, um, one area that a kind of perennial favorite, or at least in recent years, has become intelligence increase, the robots becoming as smart as we are. And that's sort of been done, maybe done to death. Uh, one a kind of a variation on that that, Strikes me as maybe a little more interesting to explore is intelligence augmentation, which has also been treated. But there's uh, some ni- one idea that I kind of like it's kind of an idea is what if there is some simple trick, some mental trick that we haven't th- thought of yet that would make us all, you know, 10 times or 100 times smarter? I mean, that's sort of a nice science fiction dream. And the kind of trick I'm talking about, if you do mathematics and uh, Presumably, the, the earliest people doing mathematics, like the Egyptians and the Greeks, they didn't have positional notation. So for them to add or multiply numbers in Roman numerals or in the Egyptian numerals, it's very time consuming, very slow. And then they picked up this idea from India and then from the Arabs of using you know, zero and having numbers be positionally written. And in a, in a certain sense, if you delve into it from a computer science point of view, that gives you an exponential speed-up in your calculation. Like something that used to take, you know, two to the tenth steps to do, now only takes ten steps. So it's it's much, much faster. And using writing, that's, you know, that gave us a sort of exponential speed-up. So it's nice to imagine, I, I'm sort of groping for there being some sort of intelligence amplification gimmick that people will look back at it and say, why didn't we think of that earlier, but then we have it? It might be something about forming concepts, doing like a concept calculus. You can go sort of A.E. van Vogt on you here, so have a new kind of logic. There might be some angle that we could play with there. So that's something that I'm interested in. Um, another thing that I sort of alluded to before, um, I like the idea of quantum computation. The, uh, I think it was uh I guess it was Friday night. Some young man came up to me and said, Well, I am I'm, I'm at Caltech and I thought I'd come over to the convention and, and see what you guys are doing. And I said, Well, what are you majoring in? And he says, Quantum computation, you know. And that's sort of like uh it's like some science fiction subject. It's just insane that he's they can get courses on it and not just one course, you know, a whole curriculum on quantum computation. And that's uh that's something that... There's a lot of room for science fiction coming out of quantum computation. Now, one thing that people think of when they hear the word quantum, they think about all those annoying paradoxes and things of that nature. But uh, the aspect of quantum computation that intrigues me, even though, even though I was a computer scientist for many years, I don't really understand quantum computation. I've always had trouble with quantum, compu- quantum mechanics. But... Um, The idea behind quantum computation is ordinary matter, in some sense, is performing computations. And uh, that opens the door to this idea that usually if you have any sufficiently bulky type computation, it takes on a a sort of aspect of being able to emulate other computations. So, uh, and I think I might have mentioned this in one of my other presentations here, but I like the idea of a future in which uh, ordinary objects become, in some sense, computationally rich. And it's a matter of figuring out the input-output. Certainly, I mean, if we look at something like water, the behavior of it is very intricate and complex. So I'm attracted to the idea of a world where it's sort of like a a comic book world. R. Crumb once drew a comic about a guy about to eat a hamburger, and then the hamburger gets up and starts marching back and forth on the, the lunch counter and singing to him and say, you know, you think you're going to eat I me, and that's going to be fine, but that's only half, then later you're going to be eaten. And and so this whole thing of objects talking to you is, uh, and it's sometimes in fantasy novels you'll see that, and I like that idea. And one thing, because I'm sort of pretty much generally a science fiction writer, though I mean I don't mind edging into fantasy territory, but it's always... Pretty easy to make up a science fiction explanation for whatever you 're doing, so you can go ahead and still be a science fiction writer, even though you 're playing with these things so I like the idea of talking objects that 's something that I think we could get somewhere Another thing that happens if you get the, the objects that are being computationally rich is that uh, then they can get viruses and so one of the one of the things I wrote two novels recently that were sort of on these themes post singular and um, Hylozoic. And one of the things that happens in Hylozoic, there's some aliens um, who want to invade Earth. And the way they invade Earth is, rather than getting here, is they manage to infect Earth's matter with a sort of computational virus. So the matter, instead of doing what it's supposed to do, like computing the laws of physics and keeping itself together, is creating these three-dimensional matter wave holograms of the invaders, who look like ostriches, they're called the pang. And uh, so it's almost like this, this virus infecting matter. So that's that's also a cool idea that I like to think about. And you can do a lot more with that. Another thing, uh, think if talking in terms of futures of c- computer type things, uh, this is where biotech, this is less far-fetched than the quantum computing matter. Biotech is, uh, I mean, people say that's going to be the great technology of the 21st century. And, uh, well, that's a rash prediction, okay? I mean, in in 1910, what would have people said was going to be the great technology of the 20th century? Steel mills? <laughs> but, uh, so, even though it's a rash prediction, though, the whole thing of biotech, that's something I feel like in science fiction we really have only only scratch the surface. There's so much we can do. One idea I liked, I, I don't know if it's been used in a story, maybe it has, somebody turns himself into a virus and he becomes a disease that other people catch. So you catch this disease and your personality becomes that guy's. Or, uh, the idea of having, your, being able to split your body up into about 10 pieces and have them crawl around and do different things. That would be nice. Or, The whole bio thing, getting into hive minds. I think the hive mind, there's something about the American society, we always like to praise individualism and run down the idea. We always depict uh, like societies that we're opposed to, generally communist societies, or whoever we're fighting at a given time. We say, oh, they're like a hive. Everybody thinks the same. There's no individual mind. But actually, hives can do interesting things. I mean, an ant by itself really... Can't do Jack, but you get a hive of ants, and you've got quite a, an interesting intelligence going on there and Whether or not we like to admit it, we humans are a hive i mean we we get together at a convention like this, we rub our feelers we <laughs> we share pieces of food, we regurgitate nectar and <laughs> you know we do these things, and anything if you grew up in the woods and nobody had ever taught you anything, you know if you hadn't had any schooling, any books i mean your your mental life would be you know, presumably at a lower level than it is now. So, um, and uh, in some way, there's something... I, I've never liked the news media. It always seems to me that they're pushing stories that I don't want to hear about, and relentlessly pushing them. You know, every single day you hear about the same three or four things at any given time, and. I won't list them, but, you know, the types of things, the stories, do I have to hear about this again? You know, this just goes on and on, it's never solved. I mean, it really, in some way, has no direct impact on my life. You know, I mean, these people are not in my backyard attacking me. So why do I have to think about them every day? And you get, it's almost like, it's, you begin to sense that the hive mind is mentally ill, you know, or uh, there's, there's some th- something psychotic about the hive mind. And uh, there should be some way to play with that. I'm thinking about a story where some, some one person becomes the hive mind. You know, So it would be a hard person to live with. Uh, but there's also the good side of the hive mind. I mean, science, art, literature, these are all things that the hive mind does. So we tend to disparage it because of the things we don't like. So that's something that interests me kind of socially. Now... Um, Telepathy is something, it seems, if you didn't know about cell phones and suddenly you saw people using them, you'd almost think that they have telepathy. I mean, they're walking down the street, they're talking to each other, I mean, they've got this extremely, almost invisible, lightweight device. Um, so there's, that and uh, instant messaging, and just, I mean, it's easy to imagine all of this is just gonna be ramped up in the coming even 20 years, just incalculably. If we just compare to where we were 20 years ago, you had a cell phone that was the size of a shoebox, you know. So um, that's something. I think it'll be at some point, people's the bandwidth of people's communication will become. So we'll be even saying, why were we so excited about telepathy? I mean, we've got it. You know, I'm I'm sharing my thoughts with you really fast. Now, would we implant chips in our head? Uh, that's probably not a good idea, okay? Gets a virus, they, they want to recall it and put the new release in. <laughs> so, I think generally, you don't want to put stuff that's made by computer geeks inside your body. <laughs> Though, I mean, sometimes you have to go the cyborg route, you know, the heart replacement, the hip thing, but probably not a good idea in the brain. But it's always, I've often in my science fiction, I always have this idea of a a cell phone. I always like the idea of getting away from machines being stiff and hard. So I often write about computers that are, I mean, computers going into matter, computers going into living stuff, or some intermediate thing where we have this soft, intelligent plastic, like this plastic that's got extremely rich channels of, of wiring in it, a little bit like a, Oh, a cephalopod, but maybe it's made of plastic. And I could see people wearing these little things like slugs on the back of their necks. And that can pick up their electromagnetic uh, vibrations from their skull, and they can communicate with that. So that would be a reasonable sort of thing to expect to see. Um, what are some other topics? I made a, a big list of things I was going to say, but uh, it's not a good idea to read your talk, I found. That's... If you ever go to... When English professors have conferences, they all read their talks. It's terrible. And, and sometimes they'll have their talk up on the screen. You can follow along. It's it's sort of dull. Uh, but I did... I was anxious about this talk so, for some reason, so I wrote it, wrote down some of the things I wanted to say. Um, okay. Another topic I wanted to get into is the idea of magic doors. There's the, the whole thing of... Uh, the whole thing of space travel, it just, I, think I was talking about this the other day, it's its so kind of impractical, especially if you want to get out of the solar system. You know, there's these, these things that are taking so long, and uh, there's the, the hard radiation that we tend to like not like to think about it, but there's the radiation that does come through the spaceship and has a deleterious effect on you. And uh, it's not clear that we ever will be getting spaceships as we currently think of them, to do the things that we dream of in space opera. And uh, it's just as, I mean, it's like we're not going to be able to sail to the stars in ships, you know, we're not going to be go- going there in carriages, we're probably not going to be going there in metal boxes. But uh, even so, you know, you don't want to give up. You're a science fiction writer, why should you? So. Uh, then we have the, the good old faster-than-light transportation, and there's different ways to do that. Heinlein had an interesting mixed approach. You'd fly your spaceship out to a certain node, and that way you got, still got to have a spaceport. The spaceports are always so great, you know. Back when we thought of airports as fun, you know, <laughs> you'd, you'd have these bulbous, odd-shaped ships there, and, and you'd all fly out to this point, this node, and then do your your jump, your hyper jump. I remember in Starman Jones when uh, they've lost the book that lists the numbers that you need to know to do the jump. This is such a funny mixture of technology. It's like a table of logarithms, but Young Jones has memorized the table. And as uh, I, w- I went on and majored in math in college, so I could identify with this. I liked. Uh, we have another math major here, Larry Niven. Yeah, happy to have you here. And um, so that's that was sort of an interesting mixture. But then the the sort of other approach is just to go ahead and have the the magic door right here on Earth. And again, an early example of that tunnel in the sky by Heinlein. But lots of people have, you know, that's almost a kind of a very familiar convention. And I like that convention, the idea, because it it lets us get off the Earth without having the the whole machinery and the whole support system. And the the problems with the years-long lags of getting from here to there. So I think, I like the idea of the magic doors. I've I've thought about them a little bit over the years. Um, I often like to think about things in terms of space curvature and so on. And there's this thing called an Einstein-Rosen bridge where we have two parallel sheets of space and you have a sort of wormhole connecting them. And if you analyze what one of those wormholes looks like if you're in one of the space, uh, if you think of like a, a square being in a plane and looking towards a wormhole, what he's going to see is something that looks to him sort of like a circle that has another world inside it. And so raising things by a dimension, if I'm looking at a wormhole to another world, I'm going to see something that looks maybe a little bit like a, a Christmas tree ornament, like it's kind of a, a glistening glass, glassy ball. And inside there, I'm going to see this entire other world. It's like a crystal ball, but I can actually push into it. And inside there, it's not this world, but another world when I go through it, I'll look back and I'll see this sort of crystal ball. And inside that will be the world I left. And that's an attractive thing. And I had a friend who's actually a a painter. Um, His name uh, escapes me for the moment. I'll think of it in just a second. He lives in North Dakota. And he paints, oh, Dick Termes is his name, T-E-R-M-E-S. And he paints exclusively on spheres. And he says, uh, he was telling me, I've been to his house a couple of times. Spearfish, North Dakota, and he, uh, he's a great artist, and he, uh, he says, I'll go to Kmart after Christmas time, and they'll have people who like to get these oversized lawn ornaments, and he'll pick those up and use those to paint on. And his easel is this sort of ring, and it's, it's padded with cloth, and so he just, he has this whole system of perspective worked out. So he paints these things, and basically he's painting Einstein, Rosen, Bridges, though he doesn't think of it that way, and uh, these worlds, And he was saying, what I like to imagine is sitting in my chair and having a few dozen of these things circling around me like fireflies. You know, and each of them would be a world that I could go into. And one gain when you, you get into that kind of thing, these doors, they don't have to just go to other places in our world. You get the option of going to parallel realities, or perhaps even to the past, or even into the, uh, the sub-dimensions. Um, Subdimensions is a word I started using, uh, oh, a couple of years ago. I think, I'm pretty sure it was a word used in the 1940s science fiction. And it's always, in science fiction, there's always a matter of finding buzzwords to explain the effects that you want to do, and words that sound sort of scientific or might even be scientific, but people don't yet fully understand what they are. So in the early years, they'd talk about radio or radiation, and you know that was enough. And you could do anything with radiation in the late '40s. You know, why are those ants the size of a a house? Radiation. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, then we got into black holes. Those were useful for a while. Quarks, uh, string theory. There's always like some latest kind of bunch of words that you like to use. For a while I was big on quarkonium. Whenever something wouldn't work, I'd, I'd, you'd get some quarkonium. Cuz <laughs> I subscribe to the Scientific American, and there's always new words in there. And recently I decided to sort of go retro, and I've been using the subdimensions. And uh what what do I what do I think the subdimensions are? Well, there's this one of the many annoyances of quantum mechanics is that they say there's a minimum size, the so-called Planck length. And uh, it's some you know tiny fraction of the size of a proton. And uh, they say, well, if you get down to that size, space, it's no longer a coherent notion to talk about space. There's just some sort of foam, and there's sort of nothing under that. And uh, it, if you're a science fiction writer, you sort of, you'd like the idea of something that can sort of shrink forever. Particularly, I got I did my PhD in set theory, and I studied on transfinite numbers. So I like the idea of there being matter being infinitely divisible, you know, going all the way down, and then even more divisible than that. And I was heartened. I read some. Uh, I was reading a popular book on string theory, uh, by Brian Greene, called *The Elegant Universe*, and he mentioned, sort of in passing, that some string theorists say, well, maybe the Planck length isn't so much a barrier as a sort of interface and there's a sort of dual universe, there's sort of a mirror universe to ours under there, and so then it's sort of like reflected, so you go down there, and then you're, you're among the smaller particles of that other universe, and you keep going, and then you're getting up to larger sizes in that universe. And so that's nice, so then the sub-dimensions become sort of a real place. Another thing that's happening in physics is they're doing, uh, they're beginning to, more and more seriously, say that at the smallest scale, our space really is four-dimensional. It's not like as four-dimensional as we would like, where you know you have like room for a nice hypercube the size of a house. And he built a crooked house. <laughs> you, you can't kind of do that. But there's this idea that there could be this thickness, and so then there's some hope we could go down in there and get some interesting stuff happening for us. I wrote a story with Paul DeFilippo called The Elves of the Sub-Dimensions. And that was a little bit fantasy because we had elves, but they came from the subdimensions, so it was rigorously explained in terms of scientific terms. We had trouble selling that story, and that actually led to my starting my webzine, Flerb, Flerb.net. Some of you may be familiar with. We put out two issues a year, and we'll be doing issue number 10 in September and the first story in there was elves of the subdimensions because some of the blind fools out there didn't realize that the story was should be published um, talking about alternate universes and uh one thing that comes to mind is that the old question is are there many universes you know how many are there and one uh one thing that I think I may have mentioned in an earlier talk here. I, ca- I tend to like the idea of there being a limited number of parallel worlds. Uh, the idea of having every possible universe exist is, is in some respects, paralyzing in terms of writing a novel because whatever problem somebody's faced with, well, in one universe he solves it, in the other he doesn't. So there's, you get this sense of futility. Now. Uh, and a sort of related notion of many universes is the, uh, the sort of branching universe. There's this theory that a man called Hugh Everett worked out quite a while ago now, maybe in the, oh, I guess maybe it was back in the 70s, the many universes interpretation of quantum mechanics. And one of the ongoing problems with quantum mechanics, as it's currently formulated, is that there's no real explanation for why at a given time, an atom of uranium might decay or it might not decay. And one way out of it is to say that it does both and the universe branches. So then Everett worked out his many universes theory, and a lot of science fiction writers over the years have picked up on that, the idea that time is always branching. But again, the the problem is that's not how uh, life feels to us. We feel like we're tracing out one particular path. And that's sort of what it means really to be conscious and to be an interesting character in a novel and to be an agent is you're somebody, you're looking ahead at the various possible futures that could come to you and uh, you're choosing the one that's going to have the best outcomes for you. That's really one of the main things that we use our minds for. That's, that's sort of why I think we evolved having imagination. So you can imagine when I go out of the cave and turn right, you know, is there going to be a saber-toothed tiger jumping on me? And you can kind of, it's not that you have to smell it or hear it. You can just kind of, with your mind, reach out into the space of possibilities. And uh, it's a difficult problem. There's a story I read when I was young, and uh, it was actually only years later I realized it was by Philip K. Dick because you know the name at that time didn't particularly need, mean anything to me. It was a story called The Golden Man, and it's about this sort of a mutant. He's very handsome. But he's, he doesn't really talk much. He's not intellectual in the usual sense of the word, but women are incredibly attracted to him. This is every science fiction writer's dream. <laughs> and uh, so he, uh, it's impossible to kill him because he's able, he has this sort of what Philip K. Dixon has called precog, this precognitive ability. He can see a few seconds ahead into the future. And so they they put him into this like concrete room and they have a machine gun randomly firing bullets all over the room. And he's always, you know, he's always just, he always knows where to zig, you know, just when it would be deadly to zag. He's always seeing a little bit into the future. And so that's uh, an interesting idea of somebody who's sort of seeing ahead and taking advantage of it. Now, did they make a film of The Golden Man? It's called the Golden, yeah, eh next, and stars Nicholas Cage. When did that come out a while, ago. A while ago? Two years ago? yeah,, I missed that one. yeah, I'll have to check that out. um, somebody recently uh Neil Stevenson kind of went back into old school science fiction with his novel, Anathem, that maybe some of you read. And in the latter part of this book, he gets into the, the many universes thing and has branching time. And then he falls into the thing, though, that that sort of kind of sucks the sucks the energy, sucks the air out of a, a many universes narrative. Because the guy will be going along, he'll open a door, you know, and he's hit in a hail of machine gun fire and he's dead. But then, you know, the little break. And then the next scene, he's okay. You know, cause he, because then he's he somehow something supposedly jumped to the world where he didn't get killed. But again, if both those universes really exist, then you're just simply stopping the story and starting a different story. And it's not, it's somehow not emotionally satisfying, because you want to see your characters uh, facing the problems and somehow doing something correct. So I still, uh, that's one of those things, I still wrestle in my head about a way to write a coherent story that, that has the branching universe. One thing I've been thinking, what if the universe branches but there's only like little stubs, you know, that only go out a little bit. And you can say, wait, this is the wrong street. And you can back up. And you sort of do that. And you, while you're backing up, you forget that you were there. Um, another area that I've had trouble with writing a stories about is time travel. Uh, when I was a boy, I, for some reason, I've been thinking about Heinlein novels recently because it's a new biography is about to come out. And David Hartwell was talking to me about it. And um, Doran into Summer is a great time travel novel. And that's, uh, it seems, I like that one because it's sort of, well, it plays fair. He goes back to the past and you see, he sees his past self and his past self sees him. So there's really only one thread of time. Now the big issue with time travel novels is you go back and you go sneak up on your past self and you shoot him in the back of the head just for a lark. But then, uh, so th- but then you get this paradox that therefore you didn't come into the future, you didn't come back to the past, you didn't shoot yourself. So it's a, what I call a yes and no situation. You, know, you kill your own grandfather. Were you born? Well, no. So then you didn't kill your grandfather. So then were you born? Yes. And, you get, and there's another type of paradox. Uh, I was talking it with Tim Powers just the other day, well-known, the uh, closed causal loop where uh you're working in your lab and you can't get it together to build a time machine then your future self shows up with a time machine and says here it is idiot this is how it works and you say oh okay and then you've got the time machine so nobody has to build invent it <laughs> and in physics things like that are actually okay i mean uh Feynman talks about like positron electron pair kind of being boiling up out of just a quantum fluctuation in the gravity, so you get these two particles emerge and then they they meet up again and they annihilate each other and looked at in a certain way that's a sort of little loop. you can think of an antiparticle as a particle that's going backwards in time, so it goes up as an electron comes back as a positron so there's nothing contradictory about the closed causal loop, but the uh, the yes and no situations. And the way, how do people